So a few episodes back, I explored how much you're willing to directly support your favorite creators through paid memberships on platforms like Patreon and Substack. For this episode, I wanted to take a slightly different approach and unpack how much you're willing to pay for social media altogether. You might have noticed that more and more social media platforms are offering paid version of their services like Twitter Blue, Snapchat Plus, and Discord Nitro. But what you may not have noticed is that this is nothing new. Social media platforms in China have had a huge head start in getting users to not only pay for features, but creating features that are truly innovative. And one expert thinks it's high time more Western platforms start paying attention. This is Creative Control. I'm your host, Casey Finey. Each week, I'll be unpacking the driving forces and people shaping the creator economy and what it all means for its future. To help me dig into how social media platforms should create paid memberships, I talked to Connie Chan. Connie is a general partner at the VC firm Andreessen Horowitz, and her investment ideas are largely inspired by what's happening in China. And speaking of China, it's important to address the current uprising and how the government is reportedly surveilling and censoring protesters on some of the platforms that we'll be talking about. This interview was recorded before the protests erupted, but I still think that there's a lot of valuable information to what Connie has to say. So with that disclaimer, let's get into it. Hey, Connie. So before we get into our conversation, I want to let you give yourself a proper introduction. Thanks so much for having me here. My name is Connie Chan, and I'm a general partner at Andreessen Horowitz, where I focus on consumer investing. I've been at the firm now for 11 years, and I look at all kinds of categories, but a lot of my investment ideas are inspired by things that I see working in Asia, in China in particular. And when we talk about creator economy or the future of commerce or the future of social media platforms, I think there's so much inspiration we can take from China. Outside of that, we also invest in all kinds of categories, whether it's dating, religion, eating, shopping, you name it, really everything. And I just have to put out quick legal disclaimer that content that I mentioned today is not investment advice, and it should just be taken for informational purposes. Great. Thank you so much, Connie. I'm very excited to talk to you because the focus of this episode is on paid subscriptions to social media platforms. And I feel like you can't have a conversation about that without talking about China because China is light years ahead of the West in terms of combining digital platforms and commerce. And that goes for paid subscriptions to platforms as well as e-commerce, which is obviously just a huge, massive industry in China. So I'd love it if you can sort of set the stage for us about like for how China has been innovating in this space for so long and why they're so ahead of the U.S. and the West. Casey, I love it. I feel like I'm preaching to the choir because usually the questions aren't set up in this way. Listen, because this is a space that I've been exploring a lot, specifically looking at like social commerce and like live shopping and whatnot, which yeah. China is just, they've, they've been doing this and like the U.S. is playing catch up. Totally. I mean, we've been talking about live shopping and live streaming with tipping content for creators for literally now four or five years, I think. And actually, if you look at my investment thesis, like more than half my portfolio is inspired by things working in China. Wow. Like I, I just look at what already has market fit in China, which is already mass adopted. And I try and think, can this work in the US or not? So I think stepping back, like there's a bunch of reasons why China is a little bit more experimental and a couple years ahead, I think, when it comes to anything mobile commerce related or even in creator economy, new innovative ways for creators to make money. 
Part of it is, I think, as a country, China is just much more mobile-centric. Like, even in the U.S., as addicted we, as we are to our mobile phones, we still rely on our computers and our laptops for a bunch of functions. I remember talking to a travel company, and they were telling us they might browse for a trip on their phone, but they won't complete the transaction if it's too expensive, like $1,000 plane ticket. They won't do it on their phone. They'll go to their computer just to be safe. I'm very guilty of that. I do the exact same thing. <laughs> and that's just like a small example that just shows us we are not a mobile-first country yet. We are mobile-centric, yes, but we still go to our PC for very important things. And we're still very reliant on our computers. And the reality is the experiences that you create for a computer laptop screen versus a mobile are just night and day difference. Not only is the screen size orientation, I mean, that's obvious, but your phone also has other components, whether it's an accelerometer, a compass, the camera. There's just different things that you can do with your phone, microphone, audio input that is just not as doable or feasible on a static website on your laptop. And so because this country is basically mobile first, because a lot of people skip the laptop, they've just started innovating on a completely different trajectory, where a lot of sites, apps, services, everything starts with a phone. No one is creating a service that uses a PC laptop uh, website as the first user experience. It always is mobile app-centric. And I think that is a big reason why a lot of these Asian platforms aren't just reliant on traditional advertising as their main revenue stream. They're pulling upon their creativity to find different modes of monetization, like memberships which is something you correctly observed, which is that so many Chinese platforms have been using paid memberships as an alternative revenue stream for over a decade, literally over a decade, right? And they've experimented on this for years and years and figured out which features people want to pay for, what are the benefits of adding feature X versus Y. It's just a very powerful concept that we can now borrow from here in the West. And in addition to paid memberships, there's a lot of creativity around how creators can monetize, around digital tipping, around live shopping, and what have you. And there's a really fantastic article that you wrote for Dreesen Horowitz's website, and you outlined some examples of platforms that have been employing paid membership and paid features in really interesting ways. And so I'd love it if you just give us some examples of Billy Billy, Weibo, all, all these platforms that have been thinking about payment in innovative ways. Yeah, so paid memberships is something we've been tracking in China for years. But with all the news around Twitter Blue, I felt it was good to share this with the world. Twitter Blue and other things at Twitter. So it's. <laughs> <laughs> but in addition to Twitter Blue, I mean, there's Snap Plus, right? Discord has their Nitro service. And so there's a lot of platforms now exploring the ideas of paid membership. But I think that most of the Western examples are still in very early innings in terms of what's possible. Usually it's a very small set of features and they're not exploring all kinds of different frameworks like things that are earned versus things that are paid for, things that are meant for self-expression versus things that are utility-based, or this idea of leveling or earning points so that you have various tiers of membership that aren't differentiated by different price points, but differentiated by how good of a user you are to the platform, how valuable of a user you are, right? So there's a lot of different advanced frameworks that can create a more elegant membership system that I think is powerful that we can start to copy. And Weibo is one of the examples you mentioned. That is basically like the Twitter of China. 
And their membership revenue is over $120 million a year. It's substantial. And that's charging only $3.50 per month, which is a lot less than the $8 that Elon's asking for, right? So if you think about just the potential of the revenue stream and then the different carrots and sticks and the incentives you can build into it, I think it's a very powerful thing, not just from a revenue standpoint, but from like a user engagement standpoint. So what are some of those carrots and sticks? Because we, we've seen with Twitter Blue, there's you know, certain features you can get, like reading articles ad-free, and you know you can edit uh, a tweet up to a, a certain amount of time. But to me, those seem like table stakes kind of features. And whereas like, you know, there's other, I think that there's more innovative ways to go about it. So what have you been seeing in China that has really stood out to you in terms of features? Again, when I think about features, I think about utility versus self-expression. Um, sometimes I call it like functionality versus like frosting on a cake. So from a, like a utility standpoint, there are a bunch of more creative features that I think Western platforms can consider. So for example, the ability to pin two tweets on your profile, not just one. This allows people to have one tweet that's about a piece of content or a thought that they're super proud of. And maybe the next piece of content is a link for some kind of commerce transaction, whether it's something you're selling or tickets to something or click here to subscribe to my masterclass. It's in the same way that you see a TikTok and then in the comments section, that's where they're actually giving you the link to transact and do something about it. Having two posts that are pinned allows creators on Twitter to do the same thing, right? That's like a very simple feature that could be added. Another one that I think is actually really cool in, in Asia is the ability to follow people anonymously. You get a handful of accounts that you can follow anonymously. It doesn't show up on your list of people you're following and vice versa. No one else can see that you're following this person. In addition to the obvious, like there are some brands or people we might want to follow that we don't want to get judged for. Really <laughs> interestingly, creators can also leverage this feature because creators or famous influencers they don't want their friends being harassed by fans. They don't want their friends being known to the rest of the world. And now they can still follow and engage with people and get all that content without having to reveal their personal network. Uh, so there's a lot of small features that sound small, but actually have huge consequences and benefits in user behavior. So that's kind of like some of the feature stuff functionality-wise. And in terms of like that frosting, that self-expression, some of this is around kind of social currency, like you prove that you're an expert on Wikipedia, you prove that you're an expert on Reddit. Similarly, on things like a Weibo or a Bilibili, you can prove that you're an engaged user or a super fan, and there might be a visual badge that shows up on your profile photo or something that just demarks that your content should stand out amongst the rest. Like on Bilibili, which you mentioned, they go to the extreme and they actually give you a 100-question quiz that you have to pass. It's like topic-based before your comments can show up in certain parts of their pages. And it's a really hard quiz. I, <laughs> I like looking at the tech quiz, I cannot pass it on my first go. Then you have to ask yourself, what's the point? Because I, I saw some <laughs> of the questions and I'm like, I don't know if there's anything that I'm that like adept in that I could pass a quiz. There's even stories of like people who pay other people to take the quizzes <laughs> for them. It's a legitimately hard quiz. But the people who pass it or go through the effort of researching it, like even just as the filter of someone who went through the effort of passing that thing, you know that they care about that topic or they care to get their comments out. And therefore, if that comment shows up in that space dedicated for people who pass the test, 
then you know it's probably worth more. And I think that's cool because on Twitter, there's so much engagement farming that happens, right? And it's all about like who has the most likes. The person who has the most followers and likes, they're not always the expert in the space. They're people who are really good at Twitter, but they don't always have you're like nodding your head because we all have experienced uh-huh. this, right? Yeah. Um, they don't necessarily have the knowledge that's that's the you know best in class knowledge that you want to consume on that topic. So, what are the different kinds of things that you can build into a platform to show off someone's expertise, to show off their leveling, um, or to even show off how strong is their current level of influence? So, for example, if I'm looking at Twitter and trying to find an influencer to follow. I might be able to see like how many followers they have, but I don't know how much engagement they got with their posts or their content in the last, say, 24 hours. That kind of information is made public in Weibo, visibly seen. So you can see how up-to-date, how relevant is this influencer? And is their content still good? Or is this something where they were really good at engagement farming in the past? Or worse yet, is this like a purchased account of some kind where their current content is just not as good. You know, I think the big question here is how feasible paid subscription models would be in the U.S. because we're talking about rewiring consumer behavior that's trained on the idea of accessing content and features mostly for free. So what future do you see for U.S. platforms adopting and Western platforms adopting China's approach to this at scale? Casey, I think that's a great point because the reality is a lot of the Chinese platforms had these paid memberships very early on, right? So Weibo had their paid membership starting in 2012. It's literally been 10 years. It's baked into the culture of the app. And so... Yeah. Any Gen Z who uses it is used to having this from day one. And even before this, the platform I credit to making it mainstream behavior is actually QQ Messenger. It was kind of like their equivalent of, I don't know, like AOL chat or Skype chat or... It was like back in the day, the old school chat platform that you were using on your laptops and your computers, QQ had a paid membership that kind of made this behavior very mainstream. And that's like over 20 years ago. So this is a behavior that's more natural, definitely, for the Chinese netizen. At the same time, though, I think if you just get the right mix of features and functionality right, and you're really thoughtful about that design... We also see that people in the West are very willing to pay to show off, to get more features, to be special. I mean, even when Twitter Blue released the hexagon profile photo to show off your NFT, so many people subscribed just to have that hexagon profile photo. I am guilty of, of being one of them as well. <laughs> but that is just a way that they could get their posts or their accounts to stand out. It's a kind of profile decoration. I mean, in addition to showing off their NFT, of course. And I think just having a much wider set of different features that allow people to stand out would be really powerful. And are there any features that you think work in China that wouldn't work so well in the US? I wonder how something like the quiz would work or something more of these like gamification aspects of paid features, because in my experience, that's not something that we're so used to in the West, like having these built in mini games in apps and whatnot, it very well could work. But I, I, I think we just don't have a culture of that here. So is there any paid features, paid memberships that you see in China that you don't think would work so well in the US or the West? I think some of the profile decoration um, features, for example, might not translate as well. And it's really common in a lot of the Chinese platforms to find 
decorative frames for your profile photo, or like a little crown that sits on top of the circle image, or a little logo next to your tweet that shows that you love the Lakers. Some of those things might not work as well in the West, not just because it's potentially considered you know, less professional or childish or, or what have you, but also because I think it just it generally creates more visual, not necessarily clutter, but noise. And most of the Western platforms are much more sensitive to more visual noise. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. And I know that the focus on paid subscriptions in the U.S. has been driven primarily by waning advertising dollars, which that brings in like the lion's share of revenue for these platforms. And obviously, it's imperative for these platforms to not be so dependent on one stream of revenue. But do you see paid subscriptions and features as a way to go for meaningful revenue? I mean, again, for Weibo, it is over $120 million. And that stat is two years outdated because they stopped breaking it out as a separate revenue line. So I do think it can produce substantial revenue. Whether it overtakes advertising, I think is a TBD, to be honest. Like even in Weibo, advertising is still their largest revenue stream. Um, The paid subscriptions is not larger than the advertising revenue. But what it does is it's not just about the revenue it takes in. It can increase the time in the app. And I think that's the really special part because if you increase time and app, your advertising revenue also goes up and a user can consume more ads in one session or over a day than previously. And so if these membership things are designed correctly, then you end up potentially doubling or tripling the amount of time you were spending on these platforms than before. Yeah. And that's something you outlined in the article that you wrote, which I thought was a good point. You said that a lot of Western platforms don't think about this idea of just creating something that's fun, like creating those little moments of engagement and things that keep people in the app. Because as you mentioned, that can translate into charging more for advertising down the road if you have these really high engagement numbers. So yeah, I think that that is something that these platforms should possibly consider, creating those moments where people just engage with more than just the content or finding ways to remix the content in ways that it is like a game or something more. So I I do think that's an interesting... I think it's remixing content, but it's basically just reorganizing the content. Like if you think about Twitter, Twitter is the place on the internet that you go to to get the latest news, like literally something that just broke a second ago, a minute ago. And that is actually a really powerful position to be in. If you can combine all the UGC content on any given topic, plus official content, plus third-party content, that's actually a really irresistible recipe if you organize it correctly. I think right now, Twitter is this kind of huge fire hose of content. And actually, given the way that their algorithm recommends new things, the newsfeed is sometimes tiring to read. Because they're showing you stuff that's like a friend of a friend that liked it or a friend of a friend that posted it. It's like not always relevant to you. So your brain is always doing this like juggling, thinking like, Mm -hmm. is this an ad or is this part of their pushed recommendations? And it's because this user has this expectation like I'm only looking at stuff that are from people that I follow and this is not from someone I followed. And, And I think actually that's why some people feel like Twitter has a lot of ads when if you push through your stream, it's not necessarily a ton of ads. It's just that the other stuff that they promote and recommend to you feel like ads in some ways because you didn't ask for it. 
You know, I love that we're talking about this because just a few episodes ago on the podcast, we did a, a whole episode about how much people are willing to spend on the creators that they love. And the short version is not much because Fast Company actually <laughs> did a Harris poll. That it's true. Like, it wasn't that much. We did a Harris poll and we found out that, you know, 73% of people were subscribed to mainstream services like Netflix, HBO, Hulu, all that. But only 20% said they were subscribed to more creator-focused platforms like Twitch or Patreon or Substack. And I spoke with Anthony Ilfoldano, who is, uh, he works at Fandom, and they do their own state of streaming report. And he said that in all these conversations, it really comes back to the value that you feel like you're getting. Do you understand why you're being asked to pay? And does that thing you're being offered actually have value to you as part of your relationship to the brand? Demonstrating the value and getting people to understand why they're paying more and what they're getting is really hard. It's really hard because you're mentally just preconditions to say, all right, well, if I get this for free, I'm going to get what I need from it. Like I was already getting value and I was already liking what I got for free. And I think that that's really at the crux of it. Like, do you feel like you're getting your money's worth of like me as a consumer, if I pay this creator X amount of dollars, like, am I getting enough content to justify that payment? And so do you feel like with social media and social media content, is there enough value there to justify charging for it? So I think there's uh, different ways I'll answer that. Of course, for these like huge creators that people love, that you have strong fans for, they can still get people to pay for it. And on the flip side, the very, very long tail, when you are paying to support the livelihood of that artist or that creator, those folks can also monetize. But I think for everyone in between, what I get more excited about is the evolution of creator monetization. And I think in the future, creators will have different ways of monetizing their fandom. It doesn't have to just be you sending me money every month. A lot of it can be commerce-oriented, whether that's live shopping or curated tastes or affiliate fees or what have you, but done in a much more video-centric, more compelling and higher conversion way. And the other thing that I'm excited about, again, is that community concept. I might not be willing to pay $5 or $10 to an individual creator because that individual can't create enough content for me to think that value is there. But you band together five, 10 of them, or maybe they're experts in a particular topic, and I might be willing to pay for that. And then you add in other people who are fans or consumers of that content that I can then also communicate with. And I'm even more likely to pay for that. So let me give you an example. It's like, what if you are a foodie and you love Italian food? You might not be willing to pay $10 to a individual chef per month, but maybe there's like five or 10 of them. And maybe there's like a dietitian in there, a nutritionist in there, or maybe there's like someone who's great at gardening and can teach you how to grow those herbs. And they're in this group. And then you can be part of this group and pay for membership. You get their content. You can ask them questions, but you can also engage with other people who love their content enough to pay for it. And with that group, you can share recipes, you can share photos of what you're making, what you're baking every day. And you learn not just from the actual paid creators, but also from the community members, because the payment of membership is actually almost just a filter for people who are super fans or super dedicated to this topic, right? Take that same analogy, apply it to dog ownership, right? Or, or pets, right? Or like cat owners, right? Like say there are other people with a specific breed 
of a dog. And you might be willing to pay five, $10 to be with five dog trainers, one vet, and then a bunch of other people who have that exact same breed of pet. And you could share content. And it's not just the dog trainers and the vet that give you value. Just talking to the other dog owners and sharing content with them on a daily basis also gives you value. So this grouping of creators to me is a super powerful concept, which we just haven't seen yet in the U.S. But it's so powerful. And I, I see your facial expression because I know that I've mentioned some things that you would pay for. <laughs> this is what I'm saying. No, I'm, I'm so glad you brought this up. Yes, my facial expression. I wish this was a video podcast sometimes because, yes, I'm getting like excited because this actually hits on another part of the poll that we did because, you know, uh, the the people that we, we surveyed, they, like in the past year, more than 50 said they canceled a paid subscription to one of these creator platforms with 41% of them saying that there just wasn't enough content to justify a subscription. And so that goes back to your point of it's really hard for creators to have that level of output for their content to make it feel like a Netflix. You know, it's almost like this mentality of like, I get so much content from, you know, these major studios. Like, why can't you produce that amount of content creator? What's wrong with you? Like, where's my, you know, even like weekly videos is really hard. So I do think that that's a really interesting concept to sort of bundle this idea of like bundling creators. And that's something that we've seen to really great success when you look at the bundles that, you know, uh, telecom companies do with like, you know, streaming services and whatnot. Like people are looking for ways to kind of simplify or streamline what they're paying for in a way because you get to these like really fractionalized payments. I'm like, I'm spending X amount of dollars on Netflix and Hulu and, and Apple Music and Spotify and this creator, that creator. It gets to be so much. So, if there's a way to just think about streamlining payments, I think that that would be huge. And so is there something like this in China? Because, I mean, this is something I've been thinking about a lot, but I haven't yeah, really... Yeah, yeah. Th this whole idea yeah. of, like, grouped creators where you pay one fee and then it gets split algorithmically based off the contribution of the team that's <laughs> contributing, the, the, you know, the actual deemed experts, that totally exists already in China. Wow. Um, and it's effective because maybe you as the main creator, you go on vacation a week, like you're just busy that week. But the other people on your team can step up and answer things for you. And if they're not the big expert or if they answer either more or less frequently, you know, the payment just gets split accordingly. And so that can all be done algorithmically. What are you most excited about? When you think about, let's like, thinking about you know chinese platforms and the social media like what's on the horizon for them that you're most excited about because knowing that they are light years ahead of the west i mean what are you seeing that that's getting you really excited shopping in terms of group commerce or video shopping i'm passionate about i think that is a very obvious trend in china that you will start to see in full force in the u.s in 2023 and more creators are going to have to explore this route because it's a fantastic way to make money. But in addition to that, it's going to breed a brand new set of creators. Right now, we have our YouTube creators. We have our you know, Instagram influencers. But there will be a whole new group of people who are just really good at selling things and who can also earn the trust of their viewers and followers that they've curated and put a lot of thought into the things that they're selling or that they're able to get them some great deal or some great discount. Like, I don't know about you, but I grew up watching a lot of these, like, as seen on TV infomercials. Are we are we really going there? Because, my God, I... <laughs> listen, <laughs> little un little unknown fact about me is that I absolutely am I'm obsessed with infomercials. I do. Kathy Mitchell, Express 101, Ron Popeil, yes. The Fisherman. Like, I, like... <laughs> 
that was genuine entertainment to me. Me too. I used to watch them too. Like I, I would watch one and it, like even when it repeats on the TV, I would still watch it again because I oh. found them entertaining. <laughs> Are you kidding me? The magic bullet when he's making like an omelet in the thing. And I'm like, this is disgusting. Yeah. I wouldn't do this, but I love watching it. Like there's so many products. So like I actually bought the magic bullet. I have the OxyClean. I have the ab roller. <sighs> I have like Did you get a sham wow? You got, so you actually <laughs> bought You went through with it, I think. I mean, <laughs> but the point is, do you remember that there were a handful of hosts on these infomercials that would be used to sell everything? Oh, absolutely. Yes, for There's sure. There's like this one blonde woman who was so good at selling and so entertaining at it that I remember she was there for like the juice man. She was there for the rotisserie chicken thing. She was there for like a, mm-hmm. a mop, like everything. And so that is a new group of creators that will emerge when video shopping takes off. And it's a different group than your YouTube seller. It is a different group than your YouTube creator. Because going live is a very, very different skill set than doing pre-recorded edited video. And that excites me because there's a whole batch of creators that they don't even know that they have a chance of being a creator yet. And these people will have monetization built in from the get-go. They don't have to get to 50,000 subscribers or 100,000 subscribers to get noticed by a brand partner. With every shirt they sell, with every candle they sell, they are making money. So to me, like there's still room for different types of creators to emerge, and you're going to see it happen next year when video shopping becomes more of a thing. Oh, that is fascinating. That is fascinating. Okay, well, Connie, I would love it if you could just give me any any last tidbits or any last predictions that you that you have going into 2023 or at the end of the year? Like, what are your top predictions? I think video commerce is definitely something to not ignore. Figure out if it's something you want to explore. And if so, take the steps to, to prepare yourself, because I do think that's a behavior that will become more mainstream next year. Um, just inevitable to me that all these larger platforms and startups are going to be pushing video commerce. This Other idea that we talked about, kind of grouping creators, I think is very, very powerful. It prevents creator fatigue and burnout. It allows people to monetize in unique ways. And whether it's finding new platforms that support that or even just doing it organically, I think that's a really interesting idea for creators to kind of work together and not as solo individuals, but find other creators that kind of complement you. Basically, if one of your followers was on the fence to pay for your content, Who's someone else that you can add that would push them over the edge and figure out how to do more collaborations with them, not just in an individual collaborative, like a one-off YouTube video, but but like figure out how to do business together longer term. And then I'm just, again, like super excited about where Twitter Blue and other of these like paid memberships are going. I think as these platforms experiment with different price points, different features, again, that mixture of function and frosting, Hopefully, it'll make these platforms more fun. Hopefully, it will create a new batch of creators. You know, another fun thing about Twitter that I think about all the time now is right now, it's kind of hard to figure out which Twitter influencers to work with if you are a brand or a company trying to find an influencer, right? Like when companies and brands are working with influencers and figuring out their influencer marketing strategy, it is always YouTube, TikTok, and Instagram. Very true. They're not thinking about which Twitter influencer can I work with. And part of it is like, it's very hard to figure out which Twitter influencer is relevant, has recent influence, not just like 
ton of followers, but actual recent engagement and influence. And one easy feature that Weibo has, another example, is they have these great influencer charts that are done by different subcategories, done by different timeframes, and it's cut in so many ways that there's like literally hundreds, if not thousands of influencers that are on these lists at any given time. So it gives influencers more incentive to create good content to get on these lists, but it allows brands and partners to also now figure out, oh, this influencer on Weibo, maybe I can work with them on some kind of promotion. Maybe I can work with them to promote my product. Whereas today, you would never really think about finding a Twitter influencer to do some kind of branded partnership with. Um, So I think these platforms, all of them, quite honestly, can still do a lot more in facilitating partnerships for creators too. I agree. Because you look at the space and the creator economy is nothing new, but it still very much feels like the Wild West in good ways and bad ways. (laughs) And I'm choosing to look at it in the good ways that, that there's a lot of room for growth and for change and for things to be better. Casey, I'm going to give you one more example. I'm going to give yes, you one no, more please. example. More, more, Just more, like, please. There's one example that I love. I had a previous blog post on like what TikTok search can look like, the future of TikTok search potentially, basically just looking at what doing search looks like in China. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I assume that that's a very good roadmap for what it could look like in the US. And a really cool idea there is that right now a lot of influencers, uh, their partnerships or Um, Their commerce are for physical things, physical items, right, that you can buy, retail things. And in Asia, because of the way Doing designs their search, a lot of content, creator content or UGC content, can convert to buy tickets to events or buy, you know, reservations at a restaurant. It can buy experiences. It can buy different kinds of services, too. So one example that I, I showed was... Imagine watching a video of fireworks at Disneyland. And then you can imagine clicking into that video of fireworks and then getting a discount for two tickets to stay overnight at the Disneyland hotel at like 30% off. It allows all kinds of content to monetize Mm. that doesn't require necessarily as much production value as you would think. And it's almost this like subtle... But, but new way of converting inspiration to transaction. Like another example in Asia, when they were launching um, their, their Universal Studios in Beijing, they had one really viral video where they had a celebrity just go to the theme park and talk to like one of those costume characters. I don't remember which one. And just showing that reaction, but also having a link that allows you to go buy tickets for Universal Studios allows that creator to monetize that, right? So imagine like, you know, Kylie Jenner brings her daughter to Disneyland and they have a sweet encounter with Mickey Mouse. And the video is actually just about the sweet encounter with the Disneyland character. And yet that can lead Jen to tickets to Disneyland. As long as the platform designs things correctly in a thoughtful kind of non-intrusing, not like shove it down your throat way, There are different formats of video ads and content ads that creators will be able to explore once platforms allow kind of that bridge between inspiration and transaction. That's fascinating. And that actually echoes something that I was talking to with Twitch's chief monetization officer because they instituted a new ad program that is great for creators. This is, you know, another way to earn more money, but 
no one really wants to deal with ads in a live stream. Like no one wants like a, it's a different if you have like a YouTube video, but if you're live streaming something like that's destroying the experience. And so I was asking him like, what are other ways that he's thinking about it? And he mentioned that thinking about ways to have like not necessarily product placement, but like more natural less intrusive ways for brands to come into the entertainment, into like the content. And I think that what you just hit on is something that's really fascinating. Like it doesn't have to be like, buy this drink or whatever. It could just be a piece of like organic content yeah. and then figuring out how to monetize it on the back end. So I think that, that is really fascinating. Because like the way to combat creator burnout and creator monetization is to allow them to be more of their genuine selves. Like I, I just exactly. believe like the goal of life is to be more of your genuine self. <laughs> And you have to allow creators to do that, but still let them monetize that. So they don't have to be doing the like, buy this drink ad, just like you said, right? They should just be doing their own thing. But these platforms need to allow these creators to tag these items or to have their storefronts or whatever so that people who see that inspiration can still make money. Oh, Connie, thank you so much for this. I really do appreciate your time. This was wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to be here. That's all for this episode of Creative Control. Make sure you subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And make sure you rate and comment as well, because we always love to hear from you. Fast Company podcasts are produced by Avery Miles, Blake Odom, Matt Toder, and Julia Shu. Editing and sound design is by Nicholas Torres. Our executive producer is Joshua Christensen. Deputy editor David Litsky provided editorial oversight for this episode, as well as senior VP of entertainment, Scott Meepis. Mm-hmm.